0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Roads to Law podcast series. My name is Rahul Bajaj. I am a second year Rhodes Scholar from India and I'm currently doing the MPhil in law here at Oxford. You may hear a noise in the background, a robotic sort of voice when I ask him questions. And just to be clear, that is because I am blind and I use a piece of software that speaks out to me what is given on the computer screen and I have to listen to that whenever I ask him questions. So in case you are getting confused by that, now you know what it is. Today we are joined by a very special guest indeed. Uh, Justice Edwin Cameroon hardly needs an introduction. Born in Pretoria in South Africa in 1953, Justice Cameroon's career has seen him being described by former South African President Nelson Mandela as one of South Africa's new heroes justice cameron's engagement with the with the law has spanned four decades but at this point um He was initially on the front lines of human rights activism in South Africa, most notably in spearheading the fight for equality and justice on behalf of people suffering from HIV AIDS. Most notably, he also served on the bench for almost 25 years before retiring in August this year. He was appointed to the Supreme Court of Appeal uh, where he served from 2000 to 2009 by President Thabo Mbike and then on the Constitutional Court from 2009 to 2019 to which he was appointed by President Kalima Uh Justice Cameron, it would be fair to say, is a lawyer's lawyer and a judge's judge. Hi Rahul. Hello. Uh, thanks very much Justice Cameron, for being with us here today.
1: It's a real pleasure, Rahul, and I'm delighted and honored to be on your podcast series.
0: All right. So with that, uh, I will get into the questions that we have for you. Um, so so my first question to you is about your experience of studying at the Pretoria uh, Boys High School. And you have written in your book, in your autobiography, that that experience helped you uh, rediscover yourself as a clever schoolboy. And I'm just wondering if you can reflect on, uh, on that experience and that insight which you share in your book.
1: I grew up in in a white privileged society in apartheid South Africa, Rahul, but I was from a poor family, a broken home. Uh, My parents couldn't care for me and I was in an orphanage for nearly five years of my young childhood. Mm -hmm. But my big, big, big break came when I was uh, 14 in my second year of high school when I got into a first-rate state high school, Pretoria Boys High, that you've mentioned. So that changed my life. It was a whites-only school. Mm -hmm. Uh, It gave me the opportunities. I'd been at the school only a year and a half when one of the schoolmasters, a man called Will Hoffmeyer, who himself had been a Rhodes Scholar, Mm -hmm. said to me, you must apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. I'd never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is the way these networks sometimes determine how your self-conception, your ambitions, your hopes are, are, are fostered, but also how the, the material circumstances of your life enable you to realize those hopes. So I realized after my sister's death uh, a few years before mm. that uh, my academic uh, achievement was the way to, to try to call out of, uh, I think, a severe childhood depression, uh, a severe disadvantage materially, and Pretoria Boys High offered me the academic excellence to to, to realise all of that
0: um that's that that's good to hear my uh, my second question to you is about your first engagement with the law and you write about in the book how when you were about to turn eight you your sister laura um, unfortunately died in an accident and your father was imprisoned at the time of her funeral and could attend it only under strict supervision and you talk about how how that was the first time that you came in contact with the law and began thinking about whether it could only be an instrument uh, for rebuke and punishment or if it could be something more. Uh, can you reflect on that experience?
1: It, it was a profound experience, Rahul, uh, to to be uh, at, at a very vulnerable, event uh, at a time of family trauma, and then to see your father pinioned between two uniformed guards in the back row uh, of the pews at my sister's funeral. Mm-hmm. And of course, that that was in apartheid South Africa, where most South Africans, black South Africans, experienced the law as pinioning of them by depriving them of opportunities, putting them in jail for past offenses, mm-hmm. uh, restricting their movement. So that gave rise to a whole sequence of, of 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 thoughts and insights that only matured while I was at Oxford. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, that the law has a uh, can have a distinctive role in every society. It's mostly, I would think, in human history, been used uh, for repressive purposes to. To, uh, to 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 lock down class privilege uh, and and elite privilege, but I think in South Africa we're struggling to see whether the law can have a more liberatory role, mm-hmm. a role in which uh, a, a commitment to dignity and equality for all can be realised through the instrumentality of the law, mm-hmm. and that's been. Uh, the the trajectory that my own understanding of the law has taken in my
0: life. So you were uh, here in Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar from 1979 to 1982, where you first pursued the BA in Jurisprudence and then the BCL. Can you comment on what, looking back, were the most formative moments of your time here in Oxford and how Oxford shaped your judicial philosophy and legal thinking and your views of the law more broadly?
1: I I arrived in Oxford to study classics. I I hadn't done a law degree in South Africa before leaving Stellenbosch, which was the all-white, highly privileged institution that enabled me to get the Rhodes Scholarship still tracking that, that uh, upbringing of, of, of poverty, yet access mm-hmm. into privilege. Mm-hmm. And then after my first term, my first Michaelmas term uh, in Keeble College, I asked the law tutor whether he would allow me to uh, jump on, uh, belatedly, onto the, the, the honours programme in, in jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. There were only five terms left before the exam in the following June, mm-hmm. and eventually he agreed to do so. And it's important to say a bit about him, Rahul, uh, and it's somewhat pertinent to our interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was Dr. Jim Harris. Mm-hmm. He was a blind man, uh, blind from very, very early in his life. I, I think he was, uh, he, he was disabled in sight uh, before, before the age of two. Mm-hmm. And I think that shaped him because he was a, an extraordinarily rigorous conceptual thinker Mm-hmm. he mastered the case law He, in fact he said to us you're not allowed to have your own views until you know what the cases say you can't come into, into a tutorial shooting off your mouth about uh, policy and legislative uh, reform until you actually know what the cases say and why they say that yeah. so he applied severe standards to himself mm-hmm. he'd done the Oxford BA and the BCL and he'd done a, a doctorate, and he he applied those very severe standards to us as his students as well. And I must say that Jim Harris, in in the next eighteen months at keyboard between January of my starting the, the 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 BA in law and June of the following year when I wrote the exams, yeah. uh, shaped my understanding of law very much through the rigor through. uh, his his conception of the malleability of law. You could see that you could use the law if you understood it properly and if you understood its principles. Mm -hmm. Uh, While I was doing my BA, uh, Lord Denning was still the master of the roles. In fact, I went into the courts of justice on the Strand. Very excited moment during my BA and actually saw him preside in an appeal. It was an appeal in person. The mm. appellant was in person, and to see the courtesy and the dignity with which he treated the appellant in person before dismissing the appeal, uh, it was a very exciting moment. And Lord Denning was an arch exponent of using the law for justice. Uh, he's become a controversial figure in retrospect because many people say that his conception of justice was highly class defined by his own privilege, and I think. That's a just criticism. Mm-hmm. But uh, nevertheless, for all those reasons, the, the rigor that Jim Harris enforced on us as his students in Keeble mm-hmm. and the, the, the malleability of the law in the debate between Lord Denning and the more conservative law lords in the House of Lords was formative to my understanding of what the law could be.
0: You also pursued the BCL after the BA in Jurisprudence um, and obtained the Vinerian Scholarship, which is awarded to the best student on the BCL each year and is, of course, a highly coveted scholarship. Uh, can you can you reflect on what is it in your assessment that contributed to your success in that, uh, to, to, to you receiving that scholarship and especially if there were any non-obvious factors that played a role in your success
1: let let me make the answer very personal uh because i think uh many people listening to this podcast might themselves be road scholars you look at the career of past road scholars and you think that the success is somehow on a track that seems inevitable well it wasn't at all i i started the bcl in a state of great personal trepidation. Mm-hmm. I'd come out of a failed marriage to to the woman who was my wife. Mm-hmm. I was grappling with my own sexual orientation and uh, I, I found the BCL extremely hard. Mm-hmm. So I was grappling with the enormous intellectual challenges that uh, the one year BCL presented at that time. I remember uh, the very first seminar that I went to with the famous Ronald Dworkin. It was uh, in in the seminar room at UNIV Mm -hmm. on High Street. And uh, someone asked him, well, what if someone says that all this is just about commodity fetishization? And I remember being aghast. I'd never heard of commodity fetishization in my life before. I'd never I've never experienced debates at that level of abstraction, uh, 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 socio-political debates. Yeah. And of course, that's what Oxford does. It throws you in and you think you're gonna drown and then you you kick to the surface and somehow you manage to survive. So I'm giving you a very personal answer that that the BCL was my way of surviving. And at the end of that BCL year, mm-hmm. in which I was, as you say, given the the top prize, I came out. As a gay man and i resolved before uh, before i turned 30 that i would never ever ever in my life again apologize for what i was it was a time of great homophobia in oxford uh, the shame of being homosexual was still uh, very heavily upon the english establishment the english academic world and certainly uh, apartheid south africa was a viciously Homophobic uh, system, but I thought I would never again uh, uh, renounce or, or cover for for something that that, that I was, uh, and 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 I went forward on that basis after the BCL.
0: So to what extent do you think did your ex- did receiving external validation in that form uh, result in you feeling much more comfortable in, in coming out at that point in time or was that something that um, had been taking place for a while and like the BCL year just was the tipping point for you?
1: It's a good question. I, I do think that getting the, the Vinerian scholarship did make me bolder. Mm-hmm. I, I think I would have come out anyway. Perhaps if I hadn't excelled in the BCL, there would have been other uh, motive forces that 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 made me seek uh, the truth within myself. So, uh, but it did feel to me as though having the BCL gave me uh, a, a certain uh, a certain um, um, shield against uh, the homophobia of the legal profession at the time in South Africa. Uh, which which, which I,
0: I, I wanted to confront. And uh, you've spoken a couple of times uh, in response to this last question about the apartheid regime in South Africa, which is what my next question is about. So at the time that you were here in Oxford in the early 80s, to what extent was there aware, did there exist... Um, a degree, uh, any degree of awareness or consciousness in the Rhodes community, either um, in the trust or in the scholar community, about the unjustness of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And uh, if such awareness did exist, to what extent do you think uh, did they stake out a position uh, on what was happening in South Africa?
1: There was definitely a growing sense that the Rhodes scholarships in South Africa were themselves a manifestation of the, the unjust class and race uh, uh, race hierarchy enforced by apartheid. There were two black Rhodes scholars in my time. Uh, the, the first African Black Road scholar as opposed to a black road scholar who was from South Asia uh, of South Asian descent mm-hmm. uh, the, the first African Black road scholar was Louisa mm-hmm. uh, who became a very uh, close uh, and enduring and intimate friend to this day. Mm-hmm. in fact he was my first uh, close black friend. I met him in Rhodes house he was an a Bailey scholar uh, in in the winter. Of, of 1978, and he came up to Oxford uh, soon after to do his deal in mathematics. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there, there was the sense that, that these, that, that the election overwhelmingly of, of White Road scholars was, was intolerable. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was particular pressure and attention during my time at Oxford on the fact that the uh, that the, the four schools that were mentioned in Rhodes' will were at that, at that time still whites only. Mm-hmm. And there was an initiative to to challenge the will through the Charities Commission. The, the difficulty was that the, the will is a statute of the British Parliament. I think it was enacted as a statute in 1929. Mm-hmm. And uh, many people believed that it would require an amendment Uh, Of that statute and at the time it was the Thatcher government in the 1980s in Britain. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Thatcher took uh, a hostile view towards the liberation movements who were opposing apartheid and many people regarded her and Ronald Reagan uh, Mm -hmm. as covert supporters. Certainly their military forces and secret services were in collusion with the apartheid regime in the 1980s, there's no doubt about that. So it was a difficult path to to undo the privileges of the Rhodes Scholarships, but there were definite uh, voices, definite, definite criticisms, and uh, I, I, I fear that the, the warden at the time, uh, in, in office at the time, uh, Dr. Robin Fletcher, was not sympathetic to, to changing. There was a route other than statutory amendment, there was a route through the Charities Commission, where it was possible for the Rhodes Trust to argue that the uh, scholarships had become uh, impossible to, to 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 execute because of the racial laws in South Africa, where Rhodes had said that uh, there should be no discrimination on the ground of of race or religious opinion, mm. and I and I think that. Attempt was never made because the trustees dragged their feet throughout the 1980s, which I, I do, do not think was a credit to the Rhodes trustees at that time.
0: So my next set of questions are about your role as the Rhodes General Secretary in South Africa till 2015. I assume that in this role, you were intimately involved in the selection of new scholars from South Africa. And my, so I have three questions about that role. One issue that we often talk about in the Rhodes community as scholars is how the selection process privileges candidates who've received an elite education and have access to soft network benefits such as the one that you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation when you were 14 and a former Rhodes scholar had encouraged you to apply so things like access to those networks opportunities resources and um therefore i guess my first question is to what extent do you think that this is a well-founded concern it's
1: undoubtedly a well-founded concern Mm -hmm. there's absolutely no doubt that Rhodes Scholar applicants from non-elite schools are at a severe disadvantage we were hyper aware of this uh, during the 1980s when i myself became involved as assistant general secretary i was assistant general secretary of the roads trust in southern africa after returning from oxford until 1992 and then from uh, 2002 i was general secretary but we were hyper aware of this partly because well almost exclusively because the cost issue was overlain by the racial issue Mm-hmm. uh young black uh, learners could only access uh the the elite private schools and suburban schools which uh, had much better quality tuition and and sports and other activities than a township and rural schools mm-hmm. from about 1990 and a, a bit beyond 1990 so the only way that the the racial the the, the conspicuous uh, racial uh, privilege of the Rhodes Scholarship in South Africa could be changed was by cracking through that class system, both race and class. And we tried we tried to do that in the 1980s, not always successfully, partly because the Oxford entry requirements were so rigorous uh, and that predisposed uh, the, 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 the special... Uh, privileges of those who've been to elite schools but we did try and I think increasingly we succeeded and I think it now can be said that since uh, for for the last number of years the majority of Rhodes Scholars from the the national uh, selection constituency have been majority black
0: I guess that does answer the second part of my question about your role as well in terms of the steps that you took as the general secretary to address these concerns. So then I will move on to the third question which I had on this issue, which was there is also a belief in some quarters that there is only so much that a scholarship like the Rhodes can do to reverse or address the broader structural issues that exist in society that result in some people having better access to these opportunities, and that these are broader structural concerns, and that it's fine for selection committees to deal with the world as they find it, to work with it as they find it, and I'm wondering what your response to that is. But I, I, I
1: think that's not just true, but in a way, it, 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 it's it's uh, it's a it's a trite that that you deal with, with privilege in, in the selection of, of access to elite institutions like, like Oxford and in, in in dealing with that you replicate it but I think consciousness of that does enable you to try to counter it mm-hmm. and we explicitly in the selection process in the 1980s and the 1990s we tried to once there was a candidate who would gain admission to Oxford, a black a woman candidate, we tried to find consciously, without, obviously without being patronizing, but tried to find genuine evidence within the candidate's life history of excellence that, that didn't depend on, on uh, the, the usual elite educational access and, and, and qualifications and privileges. And I think we did manage to do that. But it, it, it is true that these scholarships, the Rhodes Scholarships, uh, reflect and in themselves also replicate uh, the privilege system that, that that has become more exacerbated in the world in the last 30 years, the, the ultra-elitism, the hyper-elitism. And I think it's a sad fact that the Rhodes Scholarships do that as well.
0: So in a talk that you gave in 2015, You spoke about how the law is a discipline that repays hard work. And I found that to be quite an interesting observation for this reason. A lot of law students and people considering the law are drawn to it because of its potential, at least as they see it, to remedy injustice and effectuate meaningful change. but they are soon disabused of those lofty notions and therefore my question to you is given your engagement with the law for four decades what are your reflections on it as a discipline and on its role in society
1: yes thank you Rahul I think that the two are, are connected and I, I go back to to Dr. Jim Harris and Keeble in, in my undergraduate and BCL year where the the start of good lawyering has got to be hard work, whether it's understanding what the cases say, as Jim Harris taught us, before you get your own high-flown ideas about policy and progressive reform, mm-hmm. uh, or mastering a set of facts in a case that you're going to present or a set of complex papers or issues. So I think the start of good lawyering is necessarily hard work, and uh, it's not easy to become a good engineer or a neurologist or a, a scientist or a mathematician. And in the same way, uh, it, 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 it would be wrong to underestimate what is required of a proficient lawyer. The, the best lawyers, and I've been privileged in my, in my last uh, two decades almost, uh, as a judge, I sat in appellate courts where we had the very, very best uh, South African lawyers, black and white, male and female. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the top ones amongst them were the hardest workers, uh, and, and it, it showed in, 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 in the depth of, of profundity that they brought to their argument and in their mastery of the cases. But I think you're also asking something else, you, you're asking uh, how, how can one use the law? And and that takes me uh, to, to, to the theme that I tried to explain in my second memoir, which is Justice, a personal account, right. which was how in the 1980s under apartheid, we used apartheid's law against itself. We tried to use the law in order to thwart the attainment of, of both uh, petty and grand apartheid's aims. And to the extent that the law uh, is has as an autonomous reality, as as a set of of norms and values that have to be applied with some measure of independence by judges and administrators, it necessarily means that the law has leaves you some space to to uh, for for creative arguments and we use that space under apartheid to thwart conscription of, of, of white people into apartheid's army to thwart forced removals to fought the past laws in two of the famous cases that I discuss later. The, the man who became Chief Justice under democracy in South Africa, Arthur Chaskelson, yeah. uh, put an end to the past laws by bringing unanswerably powerful arguments against the particular formulation of the presidential regulations under which the past laws were promulgated. Mm. So one could use the law. Uh, uh, for, for socially progressive purposes, and apartheid offered a, 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 a very vivid illustration of how that can be done. I might say, Rahul, that, that I've, I've had the privilege of going to Colombia twice this year in January and again at the end of October. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 we in the anglophone world of India and most of Africa and America and and the United Kingdom don't know enough about what's happening in the Spanish-speaking legal world. In Colombia, in very much the same way, activist lawyers and judges have used the law with enormous inventiveness uh, and and vision Mm -hmm. in order to enhance uh, reconciliation and 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 dignity, individual dignity and social rights uh, under Colombian law.
0: Your answer speaks in some measure to my last, to my next question as well, which was about how a core attribute of the apartheid regime was the use of the law to sanction and legitimize discrimination in a minutely detailed way. And you've spoken about how, despite that being the case, there existed spaces or crevices in the law that could be used to still move the needle in the direction of the change that people wanted to see. And I guess my question, therefore, I mean, if, 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 you, if you would like to build on what you just said uh, about whether uh, what 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 the apartheid experience teaches us about the role of the law in solving social problems and its limitations i guess you have spoken about like the extent to which it can remedy problems but perhaps it might be good to hear on how it can be used as an instrument to sanction and legitimize discrimination and that's something that we need to be cognizant of
1: yes uh, i think let's Let's try to take a step back. If, if one looks at the question you've just asked, uh, I think it's true, and 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 uh, Marxian analysts have shown how the law uh, was used and legal concepts uh, were formulated in a way that that protected and entrenched existing privilege. And one must concede that that, that often that is still the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps the the the, the hyper elitism. Of, of the present uh, international order and, and most national orders reconfirms that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, even under Roman law, which recognized slavery yeah. and the elites of Rome, there were concepts of equality and dignity. Our, our concept of dignitas comes from the Roman law, that, that a human is, Im, is, is imbued with dignity by virtue of being human and that, that, that certain consequences flow from that. So our question in 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 India, in in the United Kingdom, in the United States, North America, and in Africa, is that does the law call you? Does the law call judges? Does the law call lawyers to a task to to work that enhances dignity, that 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 advances equality, that advances. Uh, social justice, or does it call them only to to reinforcing exclusion and privilege and disadvantage? And it, it sounds as though I'm, I'm oversimplifying the question, but I think in many cases that is what it comes down to: that 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 you can use the law to expand access to 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 to, 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 to counter entrenchment of privilege, to counter n- narrow sectionalism or you can do the opposite. And I think that's the real question that, that lawyers face today. How do you use the law, for example, uh, in dealing with the the the, the, BMFs, uh, the, the, the IT behemoths that, 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 that have emerged in the last uh, 15 or 20 years? Mm-hmm. And I think those questions that were, that pressed us under apartheid remain as pressing today. Uh,
0: in, in 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 most parts of the world. And do you think if, if if I could just follow up on that that the choice is presented in in very clear terms to lawyers and judges? I mean, at the core of it, it may be that that is the choice that one is confronted with. But do you think that that in 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 everyday adjudication um, they are faced with that question in the terms in which you frame it? No. No, clearly not. Obviously
1: not. Because the choice might be uh, a woman's autonomy, or it might be about protecting the dignity of vulnerable migrants, or it might be about uh, expanding or narrowing. The impact of the of death penalty in, in India or, or certain states of the United States. Yeah. So it, it's, it's it's never a, a simplistic clarion call. Uh, but if you think what's happened in the United States uh, in, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, where in 1979 the Federalist Society was founded mm-hmm. with an explicit ideological objective, in regard to LGBTI equality, which is now narrowed because I think that uh, the, the far right in America have accepted that they may probably have lost the the, the wish to, to to denigrate people on the ground of sexual orientation. It's now shifted to the, the transgender issue where they still have some public purchase, uh, but an explicit uh, agenda on, on governmental power, on corporate accumulation, on 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 wealth, on taxes, on women's autonomy—an explicit agenda—and where over the next thirty years, uh, thirty plus years, they've in effect managed to to capture a large portion of the judiciary. Mm-hmm. So uh, so so we mustn't blind ourselves to the to the fact that the law is is a harsh ideological background yeah. in which, in the United States, at the moment. Uh, the far right, through the Federalist Society, and in my view, it is the far right, mm-hmm. has has captured uh, uh, the winning ground for the moment.